Well, uh, good morning, River City. It is good to be with you. Uh, grateful to get to worship Jesus with you this morning, open God's Word uh, with you together. If you're new or visiting, especially want to say welcome to you. Uh, we're glad that you join us. We'd love to get to know you. We'd love to help you get plugged into the community here at River City and love to love to just like help you to, like uh, Steph was saying, to be a part of the community, to find a spot where you can be growing in the gospel and being a part of making disciples and planting church. And so we'd love to invite you into that. Excited as well to uh, continue our series in the gospel of John this morning. But uh, before we dive in, just want to take a, a quick moment to say thanks to Andy for preaching last week. Uh, if you weren't here, I'd really encourage you go back, find that online, listen to that. Uh, Andy did a great job. Uh, and that's not, not just me saying that. I heard that from a lot of you as well, how encouraged you were by uh, the sermon that Andy gave. And, and I just can't tell you how much joy that brings me as your pastor because, um, you know, at River City, we try to be really intentional about developing leaders and, and empowering people in all, in all kinds of uh, different ways. But one of the reasons I love helping people learn how to teach God's Word and to preach that, and one of the reasons I'm so encouraged when I hear from many of you like how great that went and how God was using that for good in your lives is is because the last thing I ever want is for this church in any way to be like dependent on me. You see, I'm so glad to teach God's Word every week, in and out. I love getting to do that. It's one of the great joys of my week, getting to do that. But, but I want to be intentional about creating a culture where the thing that matters most in our church is Jesus and His Word, not whoever's teaching it. And so, uh, man, it's just always encouraging uh, to see God at work through, the, through other people teaching his word. And so I love hearing from you guys. Like, like the, my nightmare is if I come back from a week off preaching and people are like, oh, I'm really glad you're back. Like, that's my ultimate nightmare, right? Instead, like, I want us to have a culture in our church where it's just like, man, God's the one who's good. He's the one who teaches. He's the one who uses lots of all kinds of people to do that. And so uh, excited to be a part of creating that culture in our church. Uh, that being said, I am glad to be back with you this morning. I am really looking forward to opening God's word with you. We've been working our way through the gospel of John together for the last couple of months. We'll be in the gospel of John through Easter. Uh, we'll kind of time uh, John's account of Easter with our celebration of Easter, so that'll be really fun in the coming months to see that line up. But if you've been gone or you're just joining us for the first time, let me just briefly catch you up a little bit on where we've been in John's gospel, and we'll dive in. So like we've said from the beginning, John is, uh, like the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is kind of like a documentary about Jesus' life and ministry. It tells the story of, about who, who he is and what he did. But, but John's documentary, as we've seen, is very different than the other three. He totally ignores all kinds of stuff the other three focus on, and he also uh, just includes a bunch of new kind of never-before-seen footage. He like pulls it out of the vault and lets us see it for the first time in a bunch of ways. And and the reason why John is so unique, the reason why his gospel is so different than all the other three is because, because John wrote his gospel about 20 or 30 years after the other three were written, and he wrote it to a people who would have had access to and been really familiar with the other gospel writer accounts. And so the people that he's writing to, likely in many of them were second or third generation Christians themselves, meaning that their parents or grandparents were some of the first to come to faith in Jesus. And so they'd grown up kind of hearing the stories about Jesus from their parents or grandparents. They'd, they'd begun to read about them in the other gospel writers' accounts, and so they were really familiar with Jesus. But it seems as though one of the things that was happening is that these people had just become too familiar with him. 
So John's gospel isn't an attempt to just like give his opinion about what happened or tell the different stories from his perspective. Instead, what John's trying to do is he's trying to wake people up from a kind of groggy familiarity with Jesus to like the reality of this eternity-altering truth about who he is and what he's done. See, what John's after is not just like this kind of superficial head-level belief about Jesus. What John's after in writing his gospel is that people would have this true, authentic, kind of heart-level belief in Jesus. One that, a belief that's characterized by their lives being transformed, not just their minds or their opinions. And that's what John's after. And so one of the things that we've seen throughout, our, throughout the Gospel of John so far is that one of the primary ways that John goes about telling us about who Jesus really is and all that he's come to do, and one of the ways he tries to captivate our attention with Jesus is by recounting some of the miracles that Jesus did. But John really specifically, he doesn't refer to them as miracles. He always talks about them, he refers to them as signs. Because in John's Gospel, Jesus' miracles, they aren't just displays of power, rather like a billboard on a highway that tells you there's something up ahead. Jesus' signs, his miracles, they're signs that are meant to point to something beyond themselves. They're meant to reveal something important about who he is and what he's come to do. If you remember in chapter 2, we saw Jesus miraculously turning a bunch of water into wine at this wedding. And, and he used these huge jars that were normally used for ceremonial washing because what he was trying to do is, is show us that he's come to be the ultimate purifier. He's the, the Lamb of God, as John the Baptist told about him, that, that takes away our sin and makes us clean. And we saw as well in that passage that he's the all-providing bridegroom, that, that he abundantly supplies what we need and he lets us take credit for his provision. And last week as Andy preached, we saw the second sign in John where Jesus, Jesus um, he helps this official to see who he really is, that he's not just a, a man with great power, but that he's the very word of God. He is the, he is the embodiment of of God's sovereign rule and authority. He's the very person of God made flesh. And then what happens in both of those stories is that John tells us that in response to seeing Jesus' signs, people come to have the kind of real life-altering faith that John wants us to. They come to see Jesus for who he is, and they have this new faith that arises out of, that, out of seeing him. They, they come to have the kind of genuine faith that John wants all of us to have. And, and as we study chapter 5 this morning, we're going to see John recounting for us another one of Jesus' signs, another one of the miracles that he does, right, so that people would see who he is and put their faith in him, right? But uh, and this time, it's, it's, it's about the time where he heals this man who's been paralyzed for almost 40 years. But what's so interesting about this, you're going to see in the story this morning, is that the way people respond is very different this time. It's really different than all the other miracles we've seen Jesus do so far, right? Instead of seeing people's eyes open to the truth about who Jesus is and responding with real, authentic faith or even just like genuine curiosity and longing to know more, instead we're going to see is that people completely missing the spiritual billboard that this sign, that this miracle was meant to be. And they're responding to Jesus' self-revelation with either just kind of this callous indifference or with just outright hostility towards 
towards him, both of which reveal the real problem that Jesus is trying to address, that John's trying to show us that Jesus has come to deal with here, right? It's not just the physical paralysis that Jesus has come to deal with, it's this inner spiritual paralysis. So as we take a look at this third sign, what John's trying to show us about Jesus isn't merely that he has the power to restore, to heal people's paralyzed limbs. But he's the one, in fact, he's the only one who can actually heal our spiritually paralyzed hearts. And it's only one we'll rely on his power and his work for healing and wholeness that will actually be able to kind of have the spiritual life that he came to give us. So I can't wait to show it to you this morning. Such a cool passage. That in mind, let's, let's dive in. All right, let's pray, and then we'll dive into the passage together. Jesus, thanks so much for you and for your word and for our time together in it this morning. Jesus, uh, we just want to come humbly as we do every week. We want to ask that you'd be gracious to speak to us through it. And yeah, God, I just really sense my own need for you this morning. Yeah, so the truth is, like, I don't have anything to offer apart from you, Jesus. And so, God, I pray that you'd fill me with your spirit so that uh, what I have to say this morning wouldn't just be uh, good information, but it would be uh, life-transforming power that comes from you. So, Jesus, we need you to keep shaping our hearts, to keep convicting us where we need to be convicted, and to keep showing us how you're the one that really heals and restores. And so we pray this morning that we'd look to you for that in our lives. We'd show that to you. Uh, we'd show others that reality about you as well. And so we pray. Amen. All right, well, this morning we're going to be in John chapter 5, verses 1 through 18. begins this way. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem after, for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five colored colonnades, covered colonnades, And here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed, one of of whom was there and had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he'd been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have nobody to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. When Jesus said to him, get up. Pick up your mat and walk. And once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and walked. And the day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leader said to the man who had been healed, It's the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, The man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. And so they asked him, Who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple, and he said to him, See, you're well again. Stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. The man went away, and he told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. And so because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, My father is always at at his work to this very day, and I too am working. And for this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So much good stuff in this passage, but let's just kind of take it from the beginning and kind of walk our way through the story here. 
See, the passage opens with Jesus kind of heading into Jerusalem for one of the many Jewish festivals. And he goes to this part of the, of the city that, where there was kind of this shaded pool area, right? And like this is not a swimming pool, right? This is not like a spa kind of situation, right? Uh, think more of like kind of a public bathing area. It would have been used for ceremonial washing. And, and while he's there, he finds this man who's been paralyzed, the passage tells us, for 38 years. And we learn in verse 3 that, that he's not alone, right? Lots of sick and disabled people used to lie around the pool area, uh, and, and, and they were doing this. And if you look closely, what you'll notice is at the end of verse 3, right where you would expect to find verse 4, uh, you'll find verse 5. Right? And you, if you, those of you who are looking closely, you're like, hey, what happened to verse 4? Right? Like, I thought 4, 5, like, I can count, right? And this is church, but I think counting still works the same, Right? You see, what you'll find is, is that where you expect to find verse 4, you're going to find a little footnote there. And if you look in your Bibles, what you'll find is that it'll, it'll kind of let you know, right? It's, it says that, that some of the manuscripts include the following text right here before, between verses 3 and 5. It just says that, that they would wait for the, wa- the moving of the waters, and from time to time an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. And the first one into the pool after each such disturbance would be cured of whatever disease they had, right? And so the reason, just to be clear here, the reason why verse 4 is a footnote and not an actual verse, right, it's not because it contradicts something else in the passage or in the Bible, right? It's not like the translators are trying to hide some kind of mistake from you so you won't actually see it, right? Instead, you see that the man's response in verse 7, he shows that that's exactly the reason why he was there, right? Like that's what he thought, that's the reason why he was at the pool, right? He believed that there was, every once in a while, the walls would be stirred up and whoever got in there first, like that person would be healed, right? That's why he and all the other people are, are there, right? See, the reason that is a footnote is because what we see in the, in the, if you read close in that footnote, is that the reason why it's a footnote and not a verse is because the oldest and best manuscripts that we have of John's Gospel, right? The oldest and best copies that we have, right? They don't, they don't have it. They don't include those words. Apparently some of the people who copied John's Gospel by hand years later, they thought it'd be helpful for the reader to explain like why these people were here. And I, and I point that out to you not because it is some hugely important detail to the story, but I point it out to encourage you. See, the, the Bible that you're reading today is not some haphazardly thrown together document, right? It's not just like a just like a bad version of like the telephone game where you're not really sure who said what and if it's a really a real thing anymore. No, the Bible's been incredibly carefully and meticulously copied down and translated over the centuries. And the reality is that you can have a lot of confidence that the words that you and I are reading are the words that John wrote. And I hope that just encourages you and builds your confidence as in the trustworthiness and the reliability of the Bible, right? It's not just that what we believe about the stuff that's true, it's that the words that we have, they're the things that got written. And so I hope that just encourages you, right? And that's just a side note, that's not central to the story, but I, I included it this morning because I hope that just encourages you as we think about our Bibles, right? But getting back to the story, right, Jesus meets this man who's been paralyzed, and he's been hanging around this pool for almost 40 years, hoping for some kind of miraculous healing to take place, right? And Jesus, he asks him this question that, if we're honest, kind of feels like one of those questions you don't really ask people, right? It's like, it's like you, know, you don't ask a lady if she's pregnant, right? It's just like, you just don't do that, right? That's not a smart thing to do, right? right? And you also, you don't walk into a hospital and start wandering around asking, hey, do you want to get better? 
Right? Like that's like not only is the answer to that question seem wildly obvious, right? The question itself either comes across as ignorant or deeply patronizing, right? Like it's like you don't you, just, you don't ask that kind of a question. Now, there's no reason for us to think that Jesus is either ignorant or patronizing. And so what is he doing here? Why does he, why does he ask this guy who's obviously waiting for a miraculous healing if he actually wants to get better? Well, the answer to that, I think you've got to look at the way the man responds to Jesus' question, right? If you notice in verse 7, he doesn't actually even answer Jesus' question. He just kind of starts to make excuses. Right? He says, I have no one to help me into the pool and the water stirred. And while I'm trying to get in, somebody else goes down ahead of me. Right? Essentially what he's saying is, of course I want to be healed. I just can't. There's something, there's something in the way, right? See, what I think Jesus is trying to do is he's trying to help this guy to verbalize what it is that he's relying on, what it is that he's hoping in for healing. See, his whole hope for healing rests not only in this kind of vague, superstitious belief that when the waters within this pool would bubble up, that they'd have some kind of healing power, but that some random person would just find it in, the, in their heart of hearts to go help this guy in this emergency kind of situation, right? See, Jesus is trying to help him to acknowledge where his hope for healing is, where he's looking for that. And more than that, I think he was trying to do is help, he's trying to help this guy realize it's not working. He's been there for 40 years. He's on his own. He's stuck. He's helpless. And he realizes it. See, and it's in the midst of this guy's seemingly hopeless situation that Jesus just comes and he speaks these words of life to him. Right? He doesn't say, let me, let me help you get in the water, buddy. He doesn't say, you know what, hey, why don't I stir up the waters for you and then you can hop on in. No, verse 8, he simply says, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. And at once the man was cured. He picked up his mat, and he walked. Like Andy told us last week, who else can just speak and bring life where only there was sickness and death? Who else can do that? Just God. See, but unlike last week, the person who received the miracle they don't see that. That never clicks for them. That reality, it doesn't sink in. See, the, the fact is that the religious leaders, when the religious leaders, they come to question this guy about this, about this healing, he doesn't even know the name of the person who's healed him, let alone who that person is. And it seems pretty clear he's not all that concerned with finding out. Right? Even when Jesus comes and finds him later in the story, right? he doesn't ask him who he is. He doesn't fall down in worship for this guy. Right? He doesn't even thank him. In fact, the only thing he does is he just goes back to the religious leaders and rats Jesus out for telling him that he's the one who told him to walk. Right? So, they'll stop, so the religious leaders will stop bothering him and start go bothering somebody else. See, he's just experienced a miracle that he's been waiting almost 40 years for. And it's come from the very mouth of God himself. And yet he has missed him entirely. Even though his physical paralysis is gone, what seems all too clear is that there's a much greater spiritual paralysis that still remains. See, and that's his real problem. Later in verse 14, Jesus finds him at the temple and he says to him, see that you're well again? 
He says, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Pretty much all the commentators point out that the, that something worse that Jesus is referring to here is eternal judgment. If you read just a couple of late, verses later in, in John chapter 5, Jesus talks about how the Father has granted him the authority to judge sin and to bring life. You see, the reality is that just because this guy had experienced a miracle doesn't mean that he's somehow right with God and that if sins have been forgiven. Right? All the time we, we look at situations and circumstances and we think, oh yeah, that's the evidence for whatever is happening in people's lives. We look at things going well in people's lives and we think, wow, they're really blessed by God. God must really love them. We look at people's lives who are going badly and we think, wow, they must have done something wrong. I guess God's really frustrated with them. See, the whole point of John's gospel is that faith in Jesus is the one thing that changes the way God sees us. Faith in Him is the one thing that saves, is the one thing that makes us new, believing that He's the Messiah, that He's the Son of God who's come to seek and to save all those who would put their hope and their trust in Him. That's the one thing that changes our status and our standing with God. And yet what you see in the story is that this guy never exercises even an ounce of faith. Jesus commands him to get up and walk, and then it just says he instantly was healed he got up and walked. There is no mention of faith. There, that's because there wasn't any needed. Earlier this year, I don't know if you remember this, I broke my leg. I had a sweet scooter. Maybe you remember me driving around on my sweet scooter. Right? That's not the point of this analogy, but just it was a cool scooter. Right? We can all be honest. Okay. Sometimes I miss that scooter, by the way. Anyways. I remember when, when I was when my when I was my leg was broken, I I was just a couple of months that I had lost the use of that leg that I needed to keep pressure off of it. But I very clearly remember, like two months later, my leg looked just kind of like shriveled up and kind of sad, right? It was like I had forgotten leg day for a long time, right? You know, like it's like not, nothing else of me was really strong, but that one was just like really, really weak and kind of shriveled up. It took me a couple of weeks of working at it to be able to actually put weight on my leg again and to like actually walk in a meaningful way again, right? The, the point is to say, this dude that Jesus heals, right? He had been laying there crippled for 40 years, not just a couple of weeks. And you can be guaranteed his legs looked like just little toothpicks. There's no amount of faith that's going to hold him up. You see, Jesus healed this man, and the, John says the healing was instant, and therefore it was obvious. Right? This guy looked down, and his legs didn't just feel different. They looked different. I imagine the muscles that he needed to actually hold up his weight sprang into life. Whatever deformity was there that would have kept him from walking had been fixed and transformed, right? And so he just gets up and walks, right? It's not faith that he's showing. He's just doing what anyone else would do, and they see this miraculous transformation in their body. And again, John includes the details he does because what he's trying to help us to see is that even though this guy's physical paralysis is gone, there's this greater spiritual paralysis that is still plaguing him. And that's the real problem. That's the real thing. He still needs more healing work to be done. And yet this guy is not the only one in the passage who is suffering from this deeper spiritual paralysis passage goes on to highlight for us that the same thing was true of another group of people in the story. This time it's the religious leaders. The only difference is that they don't know it. See, verse 9 goes on. 
It says that the day on which this took place was the Sabbath. And so Jewish leaders said to the man who was healed, it's the Sabbath, the law forbids you to carry your mat. Verse 16 goes on, so because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. See, the Sabbath was a hugely important day in Jewish life. In Genesis chapter 2, God finished the work of creating. On the seventh day, he rested. And he, in doing so, he kind of instituted this day of rest for his people, which is called the Sabbath. Later, when God rescues his people out of Egypt and gives them his commands and his, and his laws, he, he codifies that in the Ten Commandments, right? And it's a day that God's people are meant to stop their work so that they can rest and so that they can worship God. Now, to be clear here, God didn't rest on the seventh day in creation. He didn't order the command of the Sabbath because like, he gets tired every six days and needs to like, take a break. And so if people kind of just slow down, then he can slow down. Right? Like, that's, not what's, that's not what's going on, right? See, God never rests. He doesn't get tired. He doesn't stop working. In fact, what we see in Genesis is that God rests not because he's tired, but because he finished creating. See, the Jews all believed that on the day that God rested, God was still working because he was still sustaining and holding everything together by his power. And so even in God's rest, he's still at work. He's never really taking a break. And that's important to understand because the whole idea of the Sabbath, the whole idea of the Sabbath is that God's people might choose to rest from their work so that they can remember and rest in God's all-sufficient work for them. That's the whole point. It's the whole point for us to remind, remember that even when we're not working, He is, and His work's sufficient for us. It's enough. And because He's at work, you and I get to rest. That's at the very heart of what the Sabbath is all about the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they had completely missed the point of the Sabbath. They've gotten so consumed with following the letter of the law that they'd entirely missed the spirit of it altogether, right? Instead of seeing the Sabbath as this gracious gift from God and helping, intended to help them rest physically and spiritually, right? They just saw it as a rule that they were really good at following. And they were so serious about following that rule that they wrote an entire appendix to the Bible, Right, they wrote a whole appendix right, that outlined like 39 specific categories of work that were prohibited. Right? Things that qualified as work that you could not do if you wanted to really love God and honor Him. If you were really a good, a good Jew. Right? All of them had insanely detailed subpoints. Right? So there's this, this list of hundreds of very specific things that you weren't allowed to do on the Sabbath. None of which God actually said. One of those things is that you couldn't carry anything on the Sabbath, which is why they're so upset with this guy and why they're so upset with Jesus for telling him that he should carry something. See, their hearts are so spiritually paralyzed when, that, when they witness a miracle, all they can see is a rule being broken. They want to find out who healed this guy, not so they can worship that person, but so they can admonish them for breaking the rules. See, the reason why they were so consumed with keeping the Sabbath is because it was their version of the healing pool. So just like this guy who had been sitting around this pool for 38 years, staring at the waters, thinking that in them he'd find healing and wholeness. These religious leaders had spent their whole lives staring at the list of all the things that they should do and shouldn't do, thinking that in that list they'd find the thing that would give them healing and wholeness. They're not trusting in God and His work. 
They're trusting in themselves and their work. Just like the pool wasn't working for that crippled man, their rule-keeping wasn't working for them. And so in this way, the religious leaders are really just like the crippled man, right? That's what John's trying to highlight for us in the story. They're both relying on something for healing and for wholeness that can't give it to them and never could. The only difference is that with the crippled man knew that he needed help. And the religious leaders, they don't think they need anything. They don't even know that they're sick. They think they're just fine, but they're not. They're still spiritually paralyzed, and they're just as in danger of the judgment that Jesus warns that healed crippled man about. See, what Jesus is trying to help them see in verse 17 is that only his work on their behalf can offer them the healing and the wholeness that they're looking for. Just trying to help them to see. His defense, Jesus, right? They, they come to him, they're persecuting him, they're accusing him of, of breaking the law, right? In his defense, Jesus says, My father's always at work to this very day, and I too am working. Right now, I, I don't know if it was if it was me, I would have just replied, like, those rules are dumb anyways, right? <laughs> they're not in the Bible, and so I'll do what I want, right? That's how I would have responded. And yet that's not how Jesus responds. I love it. He says, Yeah, I am working. What of it? See, Jesus could have defended himself by distinguishing what the Bible says and their man-made rules and regulations, but he doesn't do that. He just says, yes, I am working. And the justification for his work is that he is doing the Father's work. Like the Father who always is working and never rests so that you and I can. He too is at work. So that you and I might actually be able to rest. In verse 18, it highlights that they understand part of what he's telling him, that he is equal with God. He's not just doing God's tasks. He's God himself doing the work of God. But instead of embracing that incredible reality, they reject it. In rejecting his claim to divinity, they miss the healing that he is trying to offer them. You see, the Jewish leaders are they're so outraged because what they're saying is that this man's working, it's breaking the Sabbath. And yet what Jesus is trying to tell them is what he's trying to say is that my working is the thing that actually brings you the Sabbath. It's my work that actually gives you the rest and the healing and the wholeness that you are desperate for. And it's my work that's the one thing that gets you it. See, the entire point of this whole passage is that like the crippled man, the religious leaders, you and I, we are spiritually paralyzed and we need somebody to do a work for us that you cannot do yourself. And the only one who can do that work is Jesus. As God, he does the work that only God can do. So that's at the very heart of what is going on in the passage. And every week when we take communion, what we're remembering and celebrating is that Jesus did the work that you and I cannot do. And he did it so that you and I could finally rest in him. Communion doesn't make you right with God. and It doesn't change your status or your standing with him. It's a chance for us to remember that Jesus' body and his blood were broken and shed so that you and I might find healing and wholeness through faith in him. Our work is always insufficient. We are helpless. We need somebody to do a work for us that we cannot do. And whether we realize it or not, Jesus is the one who's done it. 
So the invitation is that we might put our faith in Him and our hope in Him and our trust in Him. And so if you're here today and you believe that that is true about Jesus, that He's not just a man who has power, who can heal some broken bones, but He's the great sovereign King and Creator of the universe who's come to heal our spiritually paralyzed hearts. Or you do for the first time this morning, then during our time of worship, go back and take communion. Do it with joy and gladness. Do it in rest, because you're resting in Jesus' work instead of your own. But if you're here this morning, you're still figuring out who Jesus is, and you're still figuring out what it means to rest in Him, I want to encourage you, hold off on taking communion. God is not after religious rituals and going through the motions. And just like he was unimpressed with the religious leader's ability to keep made-up rules, he is unimpressed with our ability to take communion. It's a chance for us to set our hearts on him and to remind ourselves that he's the one way we get to rest. So as we sing and as we worship God and as we remember the gospel together in song, I want to encourage you to talk with God. What is the thing that you are hoping will stir up the waters of healing and life inside of you? I'm guessing it's probably not a magical pool or your ability to not carry stuff on Sundays. I have a feeling it's probably not the things that you're looking to. The truth is we all put our hope in things to heal and to save and to bring life other than Jesus. Maybe your healing pool is finally, being, finally having that spouse or that child that you've been longing for. And you think if you just have that, then you'll really have life. That'll fix the things in your heart. That'll, it'll mend the brokenness. Maybe the healing pool for you is finally getting the approval of your parents or your boss or some of your coworkers. And you think if you finally are seen by then and approved of by then, that that stuff that's messed up in your heart will finally work itself out and be fixed. Maybe like the religious leaders, your healing pool is a set of religious practices. And you, you're hoping that if you just go to church enough, if you pray enough, if you give enough, if you do enough good things, then that'll finally make you right with God. And your hope and your confidence is, is all rooted in your work and your ability to keep some kind of thing that you think will please God. Or maybe you're just counting on the fact that you're doing a little bit better at obeying than someone else. The reality is, is that whatever it is, if it's not Jesus, it will always leave you just as crippled and lame as you were when you found it. But if we would come to Jesus, if we would admit that we're sick, if we would turn from, our un, from the pools that we're looking to that can never heal, never bring wholeness, we come to Jesus and say, Jesus, you are the one thing that heals and restores. You're the one thing that brings life. Then you'll not only be able to finally rest, but you'll actually be able to walk in the kind of life that Jesus offers you. See, the heart of, heart of doing that is what the Bible calls repentance. See, repentance is not just stopping doing bad things. See, repentance at his heart is turning away from things that can't give life and can't save and can't renew. And it's turning back to Jesus and saying, Jesus, you're the one thing that can heal and restore. You're the one thing that can bring life. I'm running after you.
Christ. And that's the invitation for all of us. There's this old hymn I love. It's written by a guy named James Proctor. The last verse goes this way. It says, lay your deadly doing down. Down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him, in him alone. Gloriously complete. That's the message of the Gospel of John. And it's the message of the Bible. That we might finally get up and start walking in new life by laying down at Jesus' feet and resting in his work on our behalf. It's the upside-down reality of the gospel. The way you get up is by laying down on him. Let's pray. Jesus, thanks so much for you. And Jesus thinks that in the midst of all of our, all the ways we look to all kinds of things that can never heal and restore and bring life, all the ways that we miss you because we're looking at everything else, Jesus, you still come in grace and compassion, like meeting us in our need. And you didn't have to heal this crippled guy. You knew that the way he'd respond to you was with indifference and ingratitude, and yet you still do it, Jesus. And you do it out of compassion for him and love for him and love for us so that we might see that the real thing we need healing from isn't broken bones and sick health. But the real thing we need healing from is the spiritual paralysis in our hearts. And so Jesus, might you show us who you really are, the great king and creator who has finished the work so that we can rest. Jesus, help us to look to you for healing and wholeness. Help us to find in you the rest we're looking for, we pray. Amen.